As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, thank you for coming to the True Crime Podcast today. We've got Neil Jackson, who is a filmmaker and documentary producer, and we're going to be talking about the Sibbit case. Before we get into the Sibbit case then, Neil, would you like to just tell us a bit about yourself and what led to the Sibbit case? Um, yeah, um, so I'm originally from rural Essex. Uh, moved up to to northeast of England, County Durham, in about the year two thousand. Um, the Sibbet case up there is a, is is kind of a bit of an urban legend, really. Um, not least because of its its link to to the Get Carter film, uh, which is a, a you know what I watched that with my dad. Film. Yeah, when I was young. Yeah, it's still one of my favourite films. Yeah. Um, however, you know. I will say there are only tenuous links with with the case. There aren't really. It's not really a you know a, a copycat film or anything like that. I'll Stallone that. did a version of it, didn't he? That wasn't as good. He tried. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No one to beat Michael Caine in that role. Michael Caine in that role is fantastic. <gasps> oh, I forgot to say in the introduction that you're a Masonic fellow. Masonic brother of Steve Ray for some, oh, aren't you? I am. Do you have the ri- a ring? No, I don't know. No rings. No. 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 I'm, I'm lower down the ladder, you see. <laughs> and Steve's just been here and done an almost five-hour podcast. Are you going to break that record, Neil? I doubt it. But I, I, we'll soon see. There's only one way to find out. I'm sorry for interrupting. Civic <laughs> case. Yeah, so it, it was kind of a... And a bit of a, an urban legend, really, like I say, up in the northeast. It's it's one of those cases that, because of its link to Get Carter, it's 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 still on people's lips, you know, fifty five years, you know, later, you know. Um, so is it an unsolved? It's not unsolved. No, it's um, two men were found guilty of the of the murder of the murder of who of a man called Angus Sibbert, who was a cash collector um, for. A company called Social Club Services, um, who ran basically all the gaming machines in the in the area. Right. Um, and you know, back in 1966-67, this was massive, massive, massive business, um, and the northeast was full of it. Um, people, people sometimes think that that Newcastle, and obviously wasn't there at that time, but people think that Newcastle was all kind of flat caps and whippets, but it, I can assure you it wasn't at that time. It yeah. absolutely wasn't. Um, you know, the nightclubs had exploded. The, you know, the, the acts that were coming into into London, the big acts that were that were playing in London were doing, you know, a night at the Astor, but they were doing a week in Newcastle, you know? So it, it, was a, it really was up and coming. So the cash is flowing. Was Sibbett mm. then transporting cash? Was that a motive? Well, part of... 
part of Sibbett's job um, was was going to, to the working men's clubs, which were unique really to the north of England at that time, um, where a lot of the machines were. And his job was to go and, and, and empty the machines, collect the money, um, pay the stewards, because obviously they all got something for, for having the machine in the in the club, and obviously take the money back and, and get it banked. So, so yeah, I mean, you, it would be easy to say that might be a motive, but he had money on him when he was found. So, Could you take us through the day of the crime slowly? Yeah, yeah. Um, for anybody who hasn't, who isn't aware of it, it, it happened. It, it happened overnight on early January in 1967, and his body was found at 5:15 in the morning in a very small mining town called South Hetton, which is kind of Sunderland, Durham, round that way. Um, it was found in the back of his own car, which was a Mark 10 Jaguar, so quite a posh car, um, in quite a industrial town, because South Hetton, was, although it was a very small mining village, South Hetton had um, a 24-hour coal production going on. Um, it produced, the seam there produced some really, really good quality coal that was used in all the power stations in the north. So it operated 24 hours a day, and that might not seem relevant now, but it will do later on. <laughs> So he was found at 5.15 in the morning. Um, police soon kind of worked out who he was. A guy called uh, Chief Superintendent Kell took, the, took charge of the investigation from Durham Police. He arrived about half past six in the morning. Um, a police photographer arrived. He took three photographs. Um, one of the front of the vehicle one of the rear of the vehicle, and one of the body in situ. They were the only photographs he took at the scene. Um, and then Superintendent Kell decided that, because he he was very forensically aware, he'd recently done this new forensics course, forensics were course quite kind of in its infancy there. Um, he decided he wanted to create a mobile crime scene. So instead of um, taking the temperature of the body and working out the time of death in that way, what he decided to do was to transport everything as a mobile crime scene, as he called it, back to the back to the police station. So I said Angus Stewart was found at five fifteen. They took took them several hours to find a truck that would that would that would tow this vehicle. It was a big car. It was heavy, and we, you know I've been told by a few people that there, there was a safe in the, in the back. Um, so it, it was big. It was a big, heavy car. It took them a long time to find something big enough to actually take it. They then carried it on a, on a low loader. Now, when the vehicle was found, it had the driver's window wound down. The rear driver's window had been shot out. So this car was put onto a low loader. It was transported to, um, to the police station at Peter Lee. It took them hours to get it there at snail's pace. And it wasn't until about half past 12 at lunchtime when it arrived there. He was then taken out of the car placed on a tarpaulin on the um, on the ground. A few more photographs were taken of him. And it wasn't then until one o'clock when he entered the mortuary when his temperature was taken. So so this is a bad decision then to move all of the evidence and cause contamination. Is this going to cause all kinds of legal problems later on? I think it's a massive, a massive problem because, you know, any any true crime enthusiast knows that, that you know, the... the 
the temperature is what determines the, the time of death. And the time of death would be crucial in this in this case going forward because the two men that were eventually convicted had an alibi for pretty much all of that night, um, apart from a half an hour period where they were travelling. That They both were together the entire night and there's never been any dispute from either man about that. Um, but that half an hour time frame was really the the only time that the the police could find that the that was when the murder had happened are these guys still in prison no um both both men are uh, were released after a 12 year sentence so they Grief. so they 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 they, they took a 12 year sentence they were found guilty both of them and they served their sentence they it's served their whole case of injustice yeah. then for me it is yeah but but i think I think just to take it back a stage, you asked you asked how I got involved. I mean, initially, um, I was with a, my good friend, actually, Steve Wraith, who um, has just broken the record for the record longest podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was with him one day and we were doing a documentary project um, and we, we went to see an old, an old face um, down, down south in the country. And um, and he he got talking. He said, "Oh, you're up in that neck of the woods, aren't you? What do you think? What do you know about this case?" And I kind of well, I, I knew about it, but I didn't know I didn't know all the detail. He said, "Oh, I've, I've got this book. I'll lend it to you." And so what it was, it was it was most unnatural by Peter Human and David Lewis. And it's out of print now. It's a penguin um, a penguin classic, and it it did big numbers in, back in the day. But it's worth quite a lot of money now. But um, anyway, he lent it to me. And I took it home and um, and I read it cover to cover that night and, and I couldn't I couldn't put it down it, it was literally one of those one of those moments where I, I couldn't go to bed couldn't go to sleep until I'd finished the book it's, it's probably one of the only ones yeah. one of the only books that's that I've ever you know that's ever captured my imagination like that but what captured my imagination was that it just didn't feel right it just didn't feel right um and the two men so one of them was Michael Lavaglio who I, I will talk about in quite a lot of detail I think and one of them was Dennis Stafford. And Dennis, I'd met a couple of times with, with Steve. Um, and so I, I kind of knew Dennis a little bit. Um, and I'd not met Michael. And Michael didn't do any interviews. He doesn't do, you know, he'd, he'd done probably at that point, he'd done a couple of TV things. But, you know, over the space of about 20 years, you know, he'd done very little. Um, he was a very private person, very difficult to kind of get to. So I, I got to the end of this book and I, I felt I already had a bit of knowledge of, about Dennis, but I still didn't feel that it that it added up. And inexplicably, I decided I, <laughs> I decided I wanted to find out a bit more about it, really. It's one of them kind of inquiring mind. I'm a, I'm a filmmaker. I, I, I love documentary stuff. It, it's how my mind works. I want to find out more. And, and so... I tried to to get to Michael um, to, to to see if I could speak to him um, because it just like I say it just left me feeling uneasy. There were so many parts of the case, and this book for anybody who 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 can get their hands on it, this book really it, it's quite dry. It's legal, and and Peter Human and David Lewis. Peter Human was actually the solicitor for them in one of their um, appeal hearings, so they they look at it really from a legal point of view, but they take each part of the case and t and take out the you know the, the bits that just don't quite add up and and every chapter almost there's something where you kind of left going what <laughs> you know that, that's what that i happen? felt that's what i felt when i was watching making the murderer yeah 
and you just this is all wrong how is this possible how how is it even going this far it's just yeah. got this momentum where they have to be convicted at all costs yeah and and there's probably a reason for that i'll, I'll tell you that later <laughs> we'll probably come to that but but dennis and michael were two very different people and you know dennis dennis by his own admission was a, a career criminal at that you know at that time he came from a good family you know he, he he didn't necessarily need to go into crime but he but he did for whatever reason um he'd escaped from um two prisons he'd escaped from dartmoor he'd escaped from wandsworth he'd you know how had he escaped um well it's not i'll be honest this isn't really my story to tell it's dennis really but i i mean my 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 knowledge of it is that um that he made they made, he made keys basically they made keys yeah they okay. made keys and it was a very clever it yeah, was a genius crafty. way to do it yeah um and and he was on the run for for a bit and so he you know he did he he had a he had a quite a long record dennis um whereas in contrast michael had no record he was a from from a, a really strict catholic family um, he, you know, he, he went to Sunday school, he sang in the choir, he played the organ, you know, he, and he, he was the least likely person to have been involved in, in, in something like that. So they were two very, and that intrigued me as well, that, that they were two opposite characters. So how they kind of ended up in, in that situation. And, and it was really, it was, it was, it was fate, I guess. And it was down to down to Vince Lander, who was Michael's brother. Now, Vince was a businessman, and all of them originated down south in London. Um, and they'd come up to the northeast. They'd moved their business up to the northeast in about 1959, 58-59. But the reason that they'd moved it up to the northeast became clear only fairly recently. So... Vince ran all things coin-operated, basically, in London. So as things were starting to come in from the States, from Vegas, places like that, so it was one-armed bandits, it was jukeboxes, it was pinball machines, it was all of those kind of stuff. And before that, he'd made his fortune. Um, he, he got the franchise to... You remember, well, you won't remember, I don't remember, but when television used to just... You used to, used to be able to get BBC. And yeah, then, BBC, ITV. Yeah, well, when, and then BBC One, BBC Two, ITV, that was it. That's right, yeah. And then came yeah. Channel Four. Yeah, you and I were old enough to remember when yes. Channel Four came on, yeah. But um, before that, there was just the BBC. And so when ITV came online, Vince got the got the um like the franchise for the whole country. Wow. For the for the little box thing that you you know, the the gadget that enabled you could you put into your existing telly that would enable you to be able to pick up ITV. Yeah. So he made a decent amount of money, he made quite a lot of money out of that. And so that enabled him to then set himself up doing doing this. Now, while he was doing that, Michael was off doing his national service. So they didn't, you know, Michael was the younger brother. So they didn't work together at that point. It was only when Michael came back from from the national service that he, he went into business with his brother. And they were very successful. They had a lot of machines and a lot of clubs around London and the southeast. They had coffee, their own coffee bars. They were, you know, they really had explored that whole explosion of you know, of culture and, and, you know, coffee shops and, you know, pinball machines and people's, you know, dancing in coffee shops and stuff like that, you know. It was it was a brilliant time for them and they made a lot of money. Um, 
unbeknown to Michael at that time, um, Vince was also doing a little bit of consultancy work with the craze. Mm. Um, and apparently he, um, he upset them by trying to put some of his machines into the same places. Now, whether this is a, whether this is a, a jump too far or not, um, I'll, I'll let you decide. But one day shortly after that, Michael, um, Michael got a knock at the door. He answers the door and there's two men outside with a briefcase and, uh, he just thought he was an insurance salesman, something like that. Michael was, was very naive, you know, very, you know, trusting. And um, they basically said, you know, you're going to buy our insurance policy. We're from the craze. You're going to need to pay us this money. And they kind of basically threatened him and they cut his tie. And he, he always says that, you know, he remembers the, the tie thing, you know. Um, and if you don't pay, we'll come back and cut something else. And so that was the catalyst for them for them moving. I mean, many years later, I did speak to somebody who, who claimed to have been at a meeting with Reg and Vince, where Reg delivered one of his, his trademark cigarette punches to Vince and put him on the floor. So there was definitely some bad blood there. Um, and almost overnight, they picked their entire business, loaded it into vans, and took it up to the northeast. And then where, the reason the northeast was the place to go was that Vince had been up there fairly recently with a man called Angus Sibbert um, to visit Angus's dad, um, who was a, a Gateshead resident who'd um, recently been taken ill. And while Vince was up there, he just, you know, he'd, they were friends with Angus. Angus needed somebody to take him back home so he could see his dad in hospital. While he was there, Vince noticed all these social clubs, which was a, a new thing, you know, working men's clubs, it is a really quite a northern thing, mm -hmm. and there's less of them there now, but they still are there, and they're still, they're still, uh, you know, quite a, a, a like a, a blast from the past, really. Still, um, but Vince noticed all of these clubs and thought, "Hang on a minute, <laughs> you know, there's money to be made here. There's no machines in any of these places. You know, they've just, you know, they just they have an act on on a Saturday night. They do a bit of bingo, and that's it. Mm -hmm. So." When it came, the time came to move, the northeast was the place to go. So everything got got moved up to the northeast, and at that time, Dennis was nowhere near. Um, Dennis was in a completely different place. He was in London, but he he had nothing to do with the company. And it wasn't until a few years later, it wasn't until about 1966, when Michael had opened his own nightclub in Newcastle, and they needed a manager that Dennis appeared on the scene. So Dennis appeared on the scene in the July 66. So that was when Michael and Dennis first met. And as I said, they were two very, very different, different characters, but they soon became friends. So there was a friendship with the victim. There was, yeah. Um, more so between Michael and Angus. Michael and Angus were best friends. Michael was Angus's best man at his wedding. Um, they were best friends. How did that friendship start? Um, well, there's a story for you. Um, Michael always tells the story of um, when Michael joined the business, they were still working out, they still were doing some of these TV conversions. So he went to a Chinese restaurant in London, in South London, and um, Angus Sibbett and his brother were running this, this restaurant, Jim. And um, Michael's first experience of Angus was Angus was the man 
tasked to hold Michael's legs while he dangled out of the window to try and move the, the area around to kind of go, you know, that's my, that's Michael's Michael's first recollection of Angus. So because of these relationships then, mm. is that why the cops brought them in as suspects originally? No. Um, the reason they were brought in was, um, I said he was found in a Mark 10 Jaguar. Yeah. The Mark 10 Jaguar was damaged. It had been involved in an accident. Okay. So there was some damage to the front of the vehicle. An anonymous tip-off told the police that there was a red E-type Jaguar in a garage in Sunderland being repaired. And that E-type Jaguar belonged to Vince Lander. Ah. And Vince Lander was conveniently out of the country at that time, but had lent it to Dennis Stafford. Right. Now... Neither of the two men denied being in the E-Type Jaguar. Mm. Neither of the two men denied actually arranging to meet Angus. But Michael and Dennis's version of events differs greatly from the police. So Michael and Dennis say that they were due to meet um, Angus Sibber in a club in Newcastle to discuss some business. Um, it was only Michael who was supposed to meet him, but Michael had gone to see Dennis that evening and Dennis had gone, I'll, I'll come with you. Um, and they were going to dis discuss some business because they'd all been away over Christmas and New Year and Angus had been left with the reins. So Angus had got some information about a, a few clubs that wanted things doing because, you know, I, I said earlier about it, it was pinball machines, it was things that you put coins in, but what Michael brought to that business was Michael brought a, a, almost a forensic mind to a mathematical mind to it because he he kind of thought, well, if social clubs need... They need acts, they need carpet, they need roof tiles, they need, you know. So Michael kind of created this whole business where if if once a social club needed anything, they could get it from, from, from Michael's company. You know, that, that could be the gaming machines, but it could be anything. So there was this big refit of a club going on that, that, that Angus was going to talk to, to Michael about. So they arranged to meet in the Birdcage Club in Newcastle in Stowell Street. Um, the club's still there, although it's not called that anymore. Um, and they arranged to meet there um, at, um, I have to get the times right because the, the times are, time is crucial in this, but they'd arranged to meet, um, I believe, at, at, at midnight. And um, so Michael, and Michael had gone to Dennis's house. They decided to, to go together to meet at the birdcage. Dennis and Michael get in the E-type, they drive, first of all, to Michael's house in Newcastle because they're expecting a phone call from Vince. So they get there just before midnight. Three people see the car there. One of them even sees Michael through the window and waves to him. They then get back into the car, go the short distance to, to, to where the, the club was. They go into the club. They're seen at 25 past 12, something like that. Um by the act who had just come off the stage and literally walked into them as they were coming in. They were they were clean. There was no sign of any, you know, any dirt on the clothes. They, they weren't out of breath. They were just their normal happy selves. And they went in, they sat down, and, and Angus sadly didn't arrive. What transpired was that Angus had left another club in Newcastle at 11.15, and that was the last time he was seen alive. So what is the police version? The police version is that Michael and Dennis agreed to meet Angus somewhere around the South Hetton area. 
they there was a, a convoy of the two vehicles that kind of carried on for for quite a while. And they, again, there's some sightings of two Jaguars quite close together that were given. And then the cars collide. So the E-Type goes, pulls around, goes in front, and then stops, and the Mark 10 goes into the back of it, causing causing damage to both vehicles. At that point, Angus is shot. He's bundled into the back of his own car. That car, um, to to get him in the, I mean, he was a big, he was a big bloke. Um, that's the other, that's the other thing. Michael and Dennis are not. Neither of them were big. <laughs> They're both quite small. Um, but he was he was put in his own car. It was snow. It was muddy. It was you know really really bad conditions. He was then one of them took the E type. One of them took the the Mark Ten. They drove up to the next junction, which was Pestpool Lane, into Pestpool Lane, which is like a tiny B road that kind of goes on right angles like that. And they stop halfway down to, to get rid of the evidence. This is the police's version of events. Um, and it's important that they stop there because it, it means that that crucial half hour that I mentioned earlier on works for them. So they stop there, clear out the evidence from the car, but leave the biggest bit of evidence in the car, which is Angus Sibbert, <laughs> dead in the back. Um, drive him round this series of right angle bends in the ice and the snow, um, and then almost arrive back at the point of the murder where the car breaks down as a result of the collision, and then the two men scarper to Newcastle. That was the police's version of events. With what motive? Well, this is the key thing. There never was a motive presented at trial. Now, there have been a number of, a number of motives put forward since, the, the biggest one being that, that Angus was stealing money. Um, and I have no doubt that Angus probably was stealing money. Um, however, what most people don't know is that he was a director of social club services. He wasn't just an employee. He wasn't just the cash collector. So if he was stealing money, he was stealing it from himself. I don't think that was the motive. I genuinely don't think that was the motive. But no motive was presented at trial. There were no witnesses to the murder presented at trial. There was no weapon found, still hasn't been found. Um, it, the whole case came to court within three months of the offence happening, which is unheard of today. And it was, they were tried in, the, in their hometown in Newcastle, which again would be unheard of now. But the evidence presented at court was so flimsy that it it would not have it would not have even made it to the magistrate's court today and you said they had an alibi yeah well the alibi they had was that you know at, at 11:30 they left Dennis's house and at Dennis's house there were their partners but also a housekeeper who had no you know affiliation to no reason to lie 11:30 they left there the next time they were spotted was around midnight at Chelsea Grove in at Michael's house in Newcastle. And, you know, the vehicle was spotted twice. Michael was spotted once in the window. So there, there's... And, and at that point, it turned out that kind of midnight time was where Angus should have been being shot in South Hetton. But Michael and Dennis were in Chelsea Grove. They'd got witnesses to, to, to say that. And then within another 10, 15 minutes, they were in a club in Newcastle. And it would have been impossible for them to have got from, you know, South Hetton at midnight to, you know, this club, even in those days. So how flawed was the police investigation to, you know, produce this questionable evidence? 
I think there, were, there are a number of bits of, of questionable, questionable evidence. And I think the, the police, I think, will... The police would say that, this, that it was a different time then. Policing methods were different. Um, I don't think there's really any excuse for, for some of these mistakes that have been made. First of all, the time of death that I've already talked to you about. So, you know, he didn't have his temperature measured until quarter past one. You know, but they were they could be precise to within ten minutes of when he was die when he when he was killed, but they hadn't taken his temperature until quarter past one. That for me to start with is unfathomable. Um, there were a number of things withheld from the defence at the time of trial, so they didn't know these things existed. And again, times have changed, methods have changed, the the, the laws around disclosure have changed. So Michael and Dennis weren't aware that there were fingerprints taken. In fact, the police denied that there'd been any fingerprints taken. Um, and as recently as 2006, Chief Superintendent Kell was still swearing under oath that there were no fingerprints found. However, we've got, we've got the police notebooks and we've got the statements of the fingerprint officers. So uh, both officers, one was Midgley, one was called Sam's. And in those books, they detail very clearly that there were fingerprints found, that they were of good quality, and that they didn't match either of the accused or the deceased. So who who did they who did they belong to? Um, What's that called? Exculpatory evidence. Yeah, and and we we never got to the bottom of that um, because the again through the passage of time, they don't exist anymore um, now. After the trial, I'll come back to some of the evidence in a second, but it's important to know that after the trial, it was only a year after the trial, so before they'd made their first appeal, Chief Superintendent Kell, um, there's a note in the police file that says that he, he's, he's basically returned all the evidence to, and transferred it here and, and got rid of some of it. and you know, it, he, he emptied the file of all of this evidence within a matter of months. Uh, and it's okay to say, well, you know, it was different then, but... But where did those fingerprints go? We, we can't find them. <laughs> and there was two photographs taken at the scene. Yeah, I mentioned that at the beginning. Now, nowadays, when, you, when, when there's a murder and the police photographer gets there, he'll take hundreds of photographs. And this guy only took three. That, for me, to start with, is odd. But if you look at the two, the two photographs of the vehicles in particular, there's a couple of things that, that's, that stand out, two or three things. Firstly, they're taken at different times. Okay, one of them, it, it's a lovely, bright, starry night. Um, there is snow on the ground, but the clouds are clear. The street lights you can see. Everything is 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 as it should be. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. The second one is snow coming down. There's skies gray. Can't see the stars. The, the, the light is different. They just don't, don't add up. Don't add up at all. I think the other thing with those photographs, and it wasn't until um, I, I worked with a chap called Ian Wright, who's an, an American photographer, who's an English photographer, actually, quite a famous English photographer, uh, photographed the Beatles and the Stones and all of those back in the 60s. He lives in America now. And he examined the photographs with me, and, and that particular photograph of the car, he highlighted that the headlights were on. Now, the significance of that is that the car was damaged. The first policeman on the scene said that the lights were um, glowing, the side lights were glowing very dimly, but that the battery had run down um, as a result of it being there from midnight till 5.15 with the blowers on, basically, because the first miners who found it turned the ignition off. So it had been blowing cold air on, on this dead body um, from midnight, if you believe the police's timings. Um, if those headlights were on when the police photographs were taken, there's something not right there. Now, I don't know what, it, what that is. <laughs> I genuinely don't. I can't explain it. But those headlights are on. So we took it one stage further and we went to a Jaguar expert, somebody who's got Mark 10 Jaguars, somebody who's, who's worked on them for 30, 40 years, somebody who owns two himself. And, um, and he, he, he looked at the photograph and he said, no, absolutely, absolutely, 100%, those headlights are on. How could they have been on if the car battery had run down? So, as I say, I can't explain it, but it's there for, the, for anybody to see. So I got so disturbed by making a murderer that I wrote a book called Unmaking a Murderer. Oh, did you? Yeah, and <laughs> the chapters, it's 10 chapters, it's the 10 methods, mm -hmm. the authorities, prosecutors, detectives used to frame innocent people mm. and two of them have come up here yeah um in what, what what we're about to discuss now i mean look what i will say before you ask that question what i will say is that i, I never went into this to kind of to, to kind of try and and get them off or try and prove that, that that wasn't my intention i'll be brutally honest my my intention to begin with was i want to make a documentary about this but it wasn't until eventually i got to speak to michael and we kind of became friends, really, that, that, that I suddenly felt I wanted to kind of go down the legal route, really, and the documentary took a back seat, and we went, we went down the legal route and challenged a lot of, a lot of this stuff, but, but go on, I've interrupted yeah, you, Yeah, so two of the uh, methods that the corrupt authorities employ to frame innocent people mm. is, one is to procure false witnesses, mm. and the reverse of that is to either hide or disqualify, or make not credible, honest witnesses. So, you, so in this case, dozens of my uh, witness statements were withheld from the defence, which mm -hmm. is exculpatory evidence again, mm. and many of those were from minors. Yep. So what, what do you say about the witnesses then? Well, there are, there are tons of them. Um, remember I, I said at the beginning it was a 24-hour town, so the, the, coal, the coal was being mined all the time. So there were people coming and going. It was a busy village at all times of the day. And so there were, I think we counted, I think it was about 45, something like that, miners, walked past that Mark 10 from about midnight time 
and gave statements to say that they'd seen it. Not one of them said that the car was damaged. Not one of them saw a body in the back. As far as they were concerned, and, and remember Mark 10, Jaguar, in a small mining village, attracts attention. And so there were lots of people who said, well, we put our hands on the bonnet, we had a look inside, we did, you know, it's odd seeing a car like that, you know. They were adamant there was no damage to the vehicle and adamant that there was no body in the back. What were the statements from James Golden? Aha. Um, James Golden is a, a very interesting case because James, James Golden was a, was a miner and he, he'd finished his shift and he was cycling along on his way home. Now... When he gave his first statement, it was before the police had determined where the murder site was. And unbeknown to everybody at the time, he placed his position to be exactly where the murder was when it was happening at exactly that time. He was supposed to have been cycling past. Um, so People love to insert themselves into cases, don't they? Well, they do, but he, he, the thing was, he didn't see anything. Yeah, so they went to the they went to the pit. They interviewed everybody at the pit, and James Golden goes, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I, I was cycling home." And he gives this statement, and he says, "No, I cycled down that road. I was there at this time. I didn't see anything. No, um, I was overtaken by two cars. I think they might have been Jaguars, um, but no, definitely no. They didn't stop. There was no there was no no you know." So anyway, he gives this very short statement. Basically, says, "I was cycling along here. Um, two cars passed me um, when I was at this position." And um, then they decide where the murder scene must have been. So they go back to James Golden. And they ask James Golden to make another statement. Different officer, a more senior officer, goes and visits him. And he makes a second statement. In this second statement, he makes no mention of the first one. And he's in a different position. Then he's visited again. In fact, he... He's visited, but then he's told he needs to go to the to the main incident headquarters, the main police station. So he's then taken to a police station where he's told he needs to make a third statement. <laughs> again, that third statement makes no mention of the previous statements. And again, he's in a slightly different position. But the defence were only told about that last statement. And the jury were only aware of that last statement. So the jury and the judge and the defence all presumed that that was the only statement he'd made but he hadn't and his evidence alone would have would have rocked rocked the boat an interesting thing you said just now about the the ways to discredit um witnesses and things like that the summing up that the judge did at the end of the case um was so bad that it is now taught in legal you know in law school as a as an example of what not to do um it's the same with Brendan Dassey, the interrogation, the fact-feeding. They now use that in mm. schools to show them what not to do. Yeah. The, every single witness, without fail, who supported their case, including those three people who saw the car when it was at, my, at Michael's house and the one who waved at him through the window, the judge systematically took every single one of them down. You know, were they lying? Were they mistaken? Could they have meant this? Of course, they're trying to be truthful, but memory plays a funny... There, are, there was so, every single instance, even the words that he used in, in describing Michael and Dennis, that they were unsavoury, that they had lifestyles that were, you know, that most people would find, you know, abhorrent. You know, they didn't. 
um, they described Michael's girlfriend as his as his mistress. You know, Mike he didn't have a mistress, you know, but it was the it was the way that 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 they were painted in in court by that judge in the end, and that that the, the last things the jury heard before they went and made their their deliberations had a, a massive impact on the on the case. Yeah, the, I think I don't know if it's the last chapter or the other. Um penultimate chapter of on making a murder is about the, the jury tampering that's right yeah. yeah okay so the ccrc investigation in 2013 what did that reveal um well i said to you that you know i'd gone into this to do a documentary and that was kind of my main focus right at the beginning but i, I eventually got to michael and I, right at the beginning i was talking about michael being quite a, a private person um and and it took me quite a lot of months to get to to get to Michael and to get to speak to him and and I had to jump through a few hoops. I got vetted a couple of times by different people, supporters of his who just wanted to make sure I wasn't some kind of fly by night journalist who, you know, wanted to make a quick few quid out of him. Um, and eventually, I, I, I clearly passed the test. And um, and he rang me one night, and we spoke for it must have been an hour and a half, two hours, something like that, and. Um, and I asked him on that call, I said to him, did you do it, Michael? And, it, and he, he said, no, I absolutely, 100% did not do it. But he said, if the murder happened then, as, Dennis didn't do it either, because we were together all night. So I kind of thought, I really feel sorry for this bloke, you know. Um, I learned a lot about him. I learned a lot about his story and, and what he'd done when he left prison and how he'd, he'd, he'd set up a charity and he'd, and he'd, he'd, he'd helped disabled kids and he'd done, he'd done so much good stuff and, and it was just so out of character for him. And, and I said, I felt, I felt like I ought to kind of almost ask his permission to kind of do this documentary, but then it just, I just, from the, the inconsistencies that we've talked about and from the conversation I had with Michael, I, I just felt like there was still a stone to be, turned you know there was still we hadn't exhausted the legal side of things um now there's a rule with the ccrc or the, the criminal cases review commission they're kind of the gatekeeper to the appeal court for anybody that doesn't know so if you want to get your case heard at the court of appeal you have to first present your case to the criminal cases review commission who are made up of ex-police ex-judiciary um you know, it, it's a it's a tough call, but the rule is is that you can only present fresh evidence, so evidence that has not been before a court or been before the Criminal Cases Review Commission before. Now that's a really tough ask when you've got a, a crime that was committed fifty years ago, um, when, as I've already described, there's a huge amount of the evidence that just does not exist anymore. Um, but we'd had this little breakthrough with Ian Wright and the photographer and the, and the headlights. And I thought that was a good, that was a good little, uh, little thing, you know? Um, and, and we found a, a guy who, um, he claimed he'd found, he'd seen the murderer. He claimed he'd met Whoa. him that morning. Whoa. So we did a bit of digging, um, in a previous criminal cases review commission application, this guy had been mentioned, um, a guy called Tom Fellows, and he'd been mentioned, he'd got about three lines in the report, that was it. Um, he'd apparently given a statement, and the CCRC had looked at this statement and come to this, you know, decided that he had a business arrangement with Vince Lander and so he wasn't to be trusted. But some of the things he said in his statement, I thought, it's a bit odd. So, and we only had three or four lines quoted, we didn't have the full statement. So I ended up in, um, 
a few months later in the, the National Records Office in Kew, pouring over all of the files that, that are kept there. Um, and um, because what I will say is, is that Durham Police have been very reluctant to, to help in, in any way. Um, when I started this, I went to the then Police and Crime Commissioner, who'd literally just been appointed, a guy called Ron Hogg, who, um, God rest his soul, he died you know, a couple of years ago now, or a year ago, I think. Um, and to start with, he was very, very keen to help. You know, I think I was the second person he came and visited after he'd been appointed. He saw the evidence I showed him. He really wanted to be a part of it and to, to right a wrong if it had occurred. And he said some stuff, you know, we, we, and I filmed him actually, and he, he said some stuff there, you know, that I was really disturbed about some of the evidence that you showed me, all of this stuff. He said, look, I said, look, what we want is we want to see the file. We want access to the file. You know, I'll show you my evidence. You show me what you've got. And and let's let's together try and work to to right this wrong. You know these guys are, are in their eighties. You know that they they, <laughs> they 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 deserve to to have some closure before it's too late. And he agreed he would try and get us that far. But he said, "Look, what I've got to do first, I've got to appoint my chief constable. And as soon as I've done that, we'll work we'll work on doing that." Well, he appointed a guy called Mike Barton, um, who, who's recently left the post now. But Mike made it very clear that, that Ron Hogg was to step away and that, that, that they weren't going to have anything to do with it and leave the CCRC to, to do what they need to do. So in doing that, they sealed the file. So I had no access to that file at all um, because Mike Barton, I've got the email, it was his decision, personal decision to, to, to seal the file mm. before the Criminal Cases Review Commission application had gone in. Mm. So we had no access to that. So I was left pouring through what was left at the at the National Archives. So there I am in queue, and I find Tom Fellows' full statement. We've only seen the four lines of it, so, you know, it's a bit of a revelation in itself. But here he is, he's describing, you know, the this, this gunman turned up at his place of work in the morning, about 8 o'clock in the morning. He was injured, he'd got an injured le left knee. Um, he'd he, Tom Fellows rented this unit from a, a couple of characters called the Dunn brothers um, who had some link to um, to Vince Lander a tenuous link um, so he was renting this unit he had nothing to do with the Dunn's he was just renting the unit he was a paint sprayer so he's there in the morning about eight o'clock this guy turns up he's injured can I see Colin Dunn I need to see Colin Dunn. I've been told to come here um, and Tom says well what on earth's wrong and the guy kind of fires this gun into the into the pipework in the on the side of the wall, you know, and, and he goes, I've, I was told to come here if it, if it went wrong and, you know, I've just shot a man and he's done this and he's thinking Tom was in on it and Tom had no idea. And um, and so Tom kept quiet about this because, you know, he felt in fear of his life. He'd got kids, he'd got a, a young family and it wasn't until about 1980-something when he'd gone to the police and he'd made this statement and the police laughed him out of the police station. No further action, nothing. We've got our men, they're in prison already, so let's just leave it. And Tom didn't think anything of it anymore, but I found out where he lived. I wasn't going to let it I wasn't going to let it You found out where the man lived? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I went and saw Tom. Um, and, and what we did with Tom is, Tom was great. Tom, Tom allowed us to involve a former Metropolitan Police artist, so somebody who who he actually trained the FBI in the techniques that, that he uses, which is to evoke past memories that people have forgotten of historic crimes, victims of, of you know, really traumatic crimes that, you know, their brains shut down. And, you know, he, it's his job to kind of try and 
and get those facts back out of them. And he uses these these techniques to create a, a almost a photo fit almost. So we did this and we got this photo fit and Tom, bless him, um, allowed us to do it. And so we submitted that to the CCRC. Um, we got a, a 3D modeler to look at the collision between the two vehicles because realistically that was the only thing that convicted them, the cars. If the cars hadn't have touched, then there would be, there would have been no case. That was the only evidence that convicted them. And again, Michael and Dennis, what I haven't told you is while they were waiting for Angus, the, the car was damaged outside the Birdcage Club is their version of events. Mm. Um, so they don't deny that there was an accident. But where that accident happened is, is you know, a, a cause of discussion. So we got, we got that. We got the, the, the 3D modeler who, who re, from scratch, created the, you know, the, the, this crash simulation. And, and he found that the angles and all the bits, and, you know, there was damage there that couldn't have been caused by those two cars colliding. There was some that did, did work. But we did know also that the paint that was used, you know, to convict them, the paint was, you know, a red Jaguar paint was found on the on the. But Jaguar also used the same, exactly the same kind of paint for minis. Mm. So, you know, there was a lot of stuff that again that didn't come out. But but the three D model thing went into the CCRC as fresh evidence, um, and um, and we got to a point where you know the CCRC came back to us within probably about. Michael was very poorly, and um, and we had to, we, we wrote to them and said, look, Michael's ill. You know, we need you to expedite this, make it quick. You know, get it get it going quicker. And they were reasonably good at doing that. And within about a year, they wrote back to us and said, we've looked at all your evidence. Um, we've looked at everything. Um, you know, we we'd used, you know, to, in order to prove our theory about the headlights, for instance, we'd used um, we'd used the Jaguar expert. Um, we'd used three different photographic experts, world-renowned photographic experts, you know, one from America, um, two from America, sorry, one of them had been um, an FBI scenes of crime photographer, you know, another one who, who'd been in photography and, and proper negatives and all that kind of proper photography for 50-odd years, you know, we'd got the, the, the best people to look at this. We'd got our 3D, um, our 3D modeler who wasn't just a, you know, a student who was, who was you know, writing code this guy this guy um was involved in in recreating the dunblane scene you know for the court case and things like that he he had a real track record of of doing stuff you know legal stuff so he, he came with a he came highly recommended and the ccrc did not use a single expert to challenge anything we put forward they basically went no <laughs> um and so we went back and said well hang on how how can you come to this decision that you're not going to continue without telling us what you've, you know, what you've, what you've done? And they came out and said, well, we, we looked, we used a magnifying glass. You know, we'd used a, a lab in America that blew up these photographs to the size of a billboard that, you know, looked at it under, you know, massive, great photographic lab. They'd used a magnifying glass, you know, it was, it was laughable really. And so we appealed. Um, and at that point, I got in touch with Michael's initial solicitor, which was Sir David Napley. Uh, now, Napley's, Sir David's no longer with us, but Napley still exists. It's a big criminal law firm in the, in the city of London. And they, they said to Michael, 
when Michael was found guilty, look, we, we, we still think you're innocent. If anything ever comes up, we'll represent you for free. And so I went to them and called in that favour and said, look, mm-hmm. we're going back to the CCRC as an appeal. It may not, you know, it depends on them whether it's going to go to the Court of Appeal or not. Can you look at what we've put forward and, and see? So we went, I went to them and they invited me down to their offices in London and, and they pulled together all the boxes of material they had of, of the case. So I've now got all the stuff from the National Archives, the bits and bobs Michael's been able to give me, all of the, the stuff that, that, that um, Kingsley Napoli have got. And, um, and in there we found more statements, more things that we, we, hadn't, we hadn't seen. So there were, there were statements that had been given um, that suggested a, a, another motive. There were um, statements in there that, and copies of police notebooks that we hadn't seen that show that Vince Lander was interviewed but there's no record of that interview there's no statement there's no nothing and the police say well no he wasn't but there's a police notebook that says he was there and he was there three times and and once he was allowed to inspect the vehicle in the police yard so what what was going on there you know um, wasn't helpful to the case so it disappeared exactly so so and again you know the police will say it was a different time was it but these two men have served a 12-year sentence had their lives taken away from them you know, it that doesn't wash. It doesn't wash. And and we were very lucky we got a brilliant QC who who said, um, I'll look at it for nothing. And he did. And uh, he was from Michael Mansfield's chambers. So he was he good came recommended. And uh, he had a good look at it and he and he said, Right, this is this is what we need. So he narrowed down our things to, to Tom Fellows, to the to the photograph of the, the headlights to um and to the to this 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 motive. Um, and the 3D stuff. Um, and the, so we put a very strong case back to the CCRC, who then went, oh, well, we'll go and get some experts. So off they went. They got their experts. So then you're in a situation, right? Then you're in a situation where you've got... Experts battling experts. Yeah, so which one do you believe? Do you go best of three? Do you do... It's, it's impossible, isn't it? So they get to pick their experts. They get to show them our evidence first. So... <laughs> It, it's an unfair situation. Experts will say anything as well. In America now, it's called testy lying. <laughs> My lawyer got Ray Crone, the snaggletooth killer, off death row. Right. He was at a bar. Waitress was dead, who worked at that bar. He was at, with his mum at home when the crime went down. DNA didn't match. Mm. Bite mark on the victim didn't match. State of Arizona paid an expert witness $50,000 to say his teeth match when they knew it didn't. Wow. And they gave him $5,000 to defend himself. And they spent millions and just put on this big theatre show. Wow. Yeah. That's how corrupt. Crazy. The, the system is so corrupt. Crazy. So, so, get, so, so go on, what, hap- what so happens? Yeah, so the they ne- get the experts. They I mean, get the experts. By that time, we'd actually located the Red E-Type. Well, actually, no, he's got it. It's still around. Still yeah. driving. Yeah. The, the Mark 10's gone. It's... Scrapped years ago, but the, the E-type, you know, the guy's got it. I know the guy's got it. I found out his details. He's willing to help. We've um, we've given these details to the to the CCRC and said, look, if you're going to do a three D scan, which they told us they were going to do three D scanning of the vehicles, use the proper car, get the E-type, and you use. No, they didn't. They just brought another E-type in, which was a different model. Um, so they did this massive three D scan, um, and they came back and said, no. 
we're right, you're wrong. Mm. Um, they've got one photographic expert who said, no, um, what it is is it's the, it's the flash from the camera. But we'd already said, well, it's not the flash from the camera. It's the, because if you look at the photograph, you can see where the flash ends. You can see. And unbeknownst to the, we'd found out what the equipment was that the police had used and what the flash bulbs were. And, and I'd got this guy in America who was telling me all this photographic stuff that was saying, well, look, if they, if they use this flash in this camera, then it would have only reached that far. It wouldn't have reached that far. And so we're adamant that this is, this is enough, but everything comes back as a negative. Um, and I had to make that phone call to Michael Lavaglio and, and say to him, look, I'm really, really sorry, but, but we've, we've reached the end of the road with it. Um, you made a promise, hadn't you? I, that, that phone call led to a, a, our first face-to-face -face meeting. And at that meeting, um, he said, I, I want you to go on a search for the truth. And I, you know, that sounds a bit, a bit amdram, doesn't it? That, but actually, you know, he, he said, I don't, I want you to look at all the evidence. And if at the end of that, you think I'm guilty, that's what you've got to say. But if you think I'm innocent, that's what you've got to say. He said, I don't want you to, I don't want you to go out to prove I'm innocent. I want you to go on a search for the truth. And so that is, that is what I did. And I promised him I would do that. And I promised him that I would, I would continue doing that. Um, and so we got to that point and Michael, I mean, God bless him. He was, <laughs> I was devastated. I was absolutely devastated. I'd poured years into this and, and I wholeheartedly believe now and believe then that Michael was innocent. And, and I'd done this for him because I, I, I just felt it'd been so badly treated, mm. you know, 12 years in high security prison in Wakefield with all these monsters and, oh, it was horrific. And um, Michael was very level-headed about it all. He just kind of went, well, that's what I expected, but it's not the end. <laughs> I was like, well, we need more fresh evidence. He's gone, no, not, not yet. Hang on. So over the, the coming weeks, we, we spoke to, to, the, to the lawyers at, at Kingsley Napoli and said, look, you know, is there anything we can do? Michael was all for taking the private prosecution out against the police. And we were advised that, that that probably would have been unsuccessful and cost Michael his house. Um, Michael was still all for doing it. Um, but what we decided to do was to take that decision that the CCRC had made to judicial review. Now that in itself is quite tricky because what you what you're saying is you're not you're not saying um, we we think you've made the wrong decision, even though we do think they made the wrong decision. We're not you're not saying that. What you're saying is is that we think that you, the methods that you used to come to that decision were at fault. And so we presented, you know, we put our papers in and said that we felt that they hadn't considered the Tom Fellows evidence in enough detail. Um, what we had found and what I had found in the, in the National Archives was a police report about Tom Fellows that basically discredited him, you know, as a, as a, having this relationship with Vince Lander, which Tom swears to this day he never did. Um, and also, you know, there were five or six other people on this report that they discredited as well. So, you know, there's a pattern there, obviously. But, you know, we said, look, you know, you haven't considered that. You haven't considered our 3D stuff. Um, and, and Michael was, again, you know, still very poorly at that time. Um, we got a court date. Um, it was it was February, I think, um, and and he dragged himself there. He under against his doctor's orders. Um, he he 
he had a, a heart complaint and he had um, he had all sorts of things wrong with him and he dragged himself there and um and we went through to the high court and we sat and we and we and we went through the whole it was a fascinating process to listen to it all and to be a part of it i mean it, it, it genuinely was um one of the barristers um for the other side for the ccrc came across to us before we went in and said are you michael of aglio and he said yes and he said, I just want to say, um, you know, I've read a lot about you and your case. Good luck. And shook his hand. You know, this is the guy who was supposed to be, you know, <laughs> defending the CCRC. So we go in and um, and very clearly the judge has already made his mind up. You know, mm. there is no, there, is, there isn't a hearing really to the be had. In. It's a, he's already made his mind up. So unfortunately, we didn't get the result we wanted there either. As, we, as we're coming out, um, before we come out, the, the, the judge says, right, well, we need to award costs now. Again, Michael had been warned that he could face up to about £25,000 worth of costs for that 15-minute hearing. Um, and, um, and he said, look, um, we need to award the costs. And the, the, the guy from the CCRC stands up and he says, um, well, I'd, I'd like to put in for X amount. I can't remember how much it was now. And, and this is broken down. Here's my statement of how it's broken down. And all that judge takes it and just looks at it. He looks across at Michael and he looks back down. <laughs> And he goes, absolutely no way. <laughs> you two go out, he said, you and Mr. Levadgo go outside and have a chat. He said, and you come back in when you've decided, but that is not what I'm awarding. And so out we went and they had a little discussion. And what was the number, do you know? Um, I, it, was, it was something like 12 grand he wanted, I think. Yeah. Somewhere around that, that mark. Um, which was obviously below what we've been told, but equally, I mean, he hadn't spent twelve grand's worth of time on it. It was just ridiculous. And so, anyway, they agreed on. A, I think, I think, it was, I think Michael paid three hundred quid. I think we offered three hundred quid, and they said, "Yeah, done. Let's just get it over and done." They were embarrassed. They were embarrassed. But we we ended up with a with with a again an, an, another no. Um, and so at that point, it, it kind of seemed as if all the doors were shut. Um, the only way we're going to get it back to, to the Court of Appeal is fresh evidence. We've exhausted all we can find. So where do we go now? Well, I thought, well, I suppose we, we go back and start looking at this documentary, don't we? There's a way of highlighting it through that. Um, as humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. And so I'm, 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 I've got a, a company called Phantom Line Pictures who are working with it, with me on it. Um, and um, it'll be called Footsteps in the Snow. We've already recorded it all. It's just been, it's been edited now. Um, 
we hope to have it out this year and hopefully that'll highlight it. But, you know, the one thing I haven't said is that unfortunately Michael passed away at the end of last year. So Michael never got to, to see his, his dream really, which was to be, you know, declared a innocent. That's so sad, man. It is really, really sad. The system is. is uncaring and they've got all the taxpayer resources in the world just to piss away mm. to prevent justice. Yeah. It's absolutely sickening. You know, he, 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 and he lived his life, when he left prison, he lived his life devoted to helping other people, you yeah. know. This, I mean, he, he, he helped so many hundreds of thousands of people, you know. Did you say he was in Wakefield prison? Yeah, he spent a long time in Wakefield, yeah. Did he bump into Sykes in there then? Possibly? I don't know, to be honest. He never mentioned him. He did He did. Uh, he did slop out and throw back at a piss over Ian Huntley, I think he told oh, me. Oh, did he? Yeah. Not in, no, not Ian Huntley, sorry. Um, Ian Brady? Ian Brady, yeah. yeah. Ian Brady. Yeah. Did he tell you any other prison stories? Not really. No, I mean, he, 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 it deeply scarred him. Yeah. I mean, what you've got to remember is that, you know, this is a guy who's never, I mean, you know, I told you Dennis had, had had some prison time. He knew he knew what was what the crack was. Michael had never experienced that. Mm. And when they went in for remand, when they were in, on remand, at that time, you could have your own food brought in, you could wear your own clothes, you you know, you were in a different part of the prison. It, it was a very different experience. And, and they did, because they had the means, the financial means, they had their own food brought in, you know, from the local hotel. And, you know, they lived, they genuinely didn't think, either of them thought it was going to go the way it did. Mm. They thought it was just a load of old rubbish. Um, and so on the day that they were convicted, Michael... Michael is devastated. He, he he meets his brother under the courtroom. His brother says, "Look, sign over the all of the company stuff to me. We'll use the money to fight your case." His brother promptly disappears for ten years and sails around the med. Hmm. Um, Michael goes back to, to to prison now, guilty man, and instead of this slightly cushy little number he'd got, where he could have his own food and wear his own clothes. He's strip searched. He's, you know, he's put into a cell with cockroaches in a, you know, it it, it was a horrific first night for Michael. So much so that he he tried to take his own life that Holy first night, shit. and it scarred him for a long, long time. What happened with Dennis then? Um, in what in what respect? Like, is he still alive? Yeah, Dennis is still alive. Yeah. Yeah. Is he? He's not interested in pursuing anything. He's just laying low. No, he's, I think he would. I think he he is. He still protests his innocence. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and I believe him. And people can get a book on this. Sibit, a body under the bridge. Yeah. Now I, I mentioned right at the beginning this book, uh, most unnatural. Well, it kind of came full circle for me last year in that um, Peter Human and David Lewis decided they were going to update the book and re-release oh. it. Um, and because I'd done so much work on the case, they they came to me and said, "Look, will will you will you help us? Will you share some of the stuff that you've that you've done?" Um, oh, and by the way, we we haven't got a publisher yet. Do you know anybody? Mm. Well, as it happens, I do. My best pal, Steve Wraith, and he's got a publishing company. <laughs> so I was able to put the two together, um, mm. and I helped them with the book. And yeah, at the, the end of last year, it did come out. Um, Sibert, a body under the bridge, um, and it and it updates the story. It, it, it's a it's their book, and then what's happened since, basically. It's, it's, it's really good. And when will people be able to watch the documentary? Well, I'm hoping that we're going to get, get it finished this year, and it'll be out this year. That's my hope. So, Everything's filmed. So probably later this year. Yeah, then. yeah. I would second think, half. I would think second half of this year, yeah. Yeah. And are you going to um, tell us about the story of Henry Hill? <laughs> 
<laughs> you spent time with Henry Hill from Goodfellas? I did. I spent a week with him. A week? Um, in my house. I watched something about him and he was like foul mouthed, drunk, out of control. Oh, Henry's lovely. Is he? he was no. We we I mean, look, i I've done, you know, if, if as well as doing, you know, the the, the Civic case, you know, I've done a, a number of documentaries and, and things like that with Steve. And um and this was a venture that we we kind of went into kind of together was to bring Henry Henry over um and, and do a bit of a talking. It was the twenty first anniversary of the Goodfellas film. It's a film that, that both of us really liked. Classic, still, isn't it? Oh it's a brilliant film. From a, see, no. yeah. yeah. And I mean from a filmmaker's point of view it's brilliant, but from a true crime point of view it's brilliant too, you know, it's just it's a fantastic film. Yeah. And so we both um, we both had a, a wish to kind of bring him over and do a bit of a talking with him. Um, and um, after quite a long negotiation period of years, I think he, he agreed to come with his wife. Um, and th- there we were in Newcastle Airport, me with my my then two year old son, I think, <laughs> waiting to wow. waiting at arrivals to um, for 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 Henry and and, and his wife. Um, and he came and he, he we had shows lined up in various parts of the country. Um, number of them, I think we had four or five lined up. Um, one in Newcastle, we had one in, in London, we had one in Liverpool, uh, one in Blackpool. You know, there were a number of them around the around the country. Um, and you said that ominously, then they were lined up. Yeah, well, because there lies Uh-oh. there lies a story, Sean. <laughs> um, well, I mean, first of all, in the criminal fraternity, um, Henry Hill, Henry Hill gave evidence against um, other members of the, yes. the mob. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that that is frowned upon, um, and understandably so. Um, you know, Henry, Henry was what, you know, what's termed as a grass. And a lot of people felt very strongly about that. Um, a lot of people in this country, in organised crime, felt very unhappy about the fact we were going to bring Henry over. Um, my point of view on that was, look, you know, here's a guy who's lived a life... I don't know the story. I don't know why. Why did he do that? Let's find out. Let's you know. Let's let's ask him the question. But I certainly had no qualms in bringing him over. Um, and initially, the the London lot started to kind of grumble a little bit, and we we don't want you to don't want you to bring him bring him down. Um, we don't want it to happen. It's not not good. And you know the people involved are, are, are dead, long dead now. But. Um, but I still won't. I still won't name them. But it was. It, it, I, I totally understand their their, their point of view. Um, they didn't want us to bring him in. He was a grass. Um, and um, and then Newcastle lot started. Uh, you know, we hear you bringing Henry over. What's the what's the crack? You know, we don't don't want you to bring grass over. He's not coming here. So then we went. Oh, yeah. The London lot don't want us to bring him. What the London lot don't want you to bring him? Well, don't listen to them. Bring him, bring him. You know, so it all kind of changed on its on its on its feet. It was weird, but um, so the Newcastle date went ahead. Everything else mysteriously got cancelled. Um, you know, literally within you know, it got to there was one venue where I we actually had to turn up still to to collect them some money and then go straight home again. <laughs> you know, it was just bizarre. It was bizarre. It was a very odd week. Did because... the one gig go down well? Yeah, yeah, it was good. I mean, it... I think I'd, I'd love to have seen more people there. I'd love to have done more with him because he, he his story was fascinating. And, you know, we it cost us a lot of money to fly him over. And we'd obviously had all of these, these gigs, you know, 
didn't look like we were going to go ahead in other places and we, we weren't going to make the money that we thought we were going to make to recoup. So he stayed with me. We, we just couldn't afford to put him in a hotel. So he stayed at my house um, in the northeast in a tiny village on the top of a hill. Um, and um, he was a character. He was a proper character. Did he behave himself? He behaved himself, but I mean, look, Henry. Henry did like a drink. He did like a drink. I will say that. I don't think um, that's any 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 secret. He he needed a drink to be able to function. Um, so, quite a lot of my time was spent avoiding going to the off license for him. Um, some of it was spent in the pub over the road playing darts, um, and we did the pub quiz one night, which was quite funny. Um, and uh, and there's a poster behind the bastard in the Scotch Arms where I live was that he signed. Um, he was a, he was a real character. I mean, he he. One night we sat up late. One night, and you know we'd got the Jack Daniels out. You know, and I, was, I said to him, "So why, why did you, why did you tell the tales to, you know, was it just to get yourself off?" And he said, "Absolutely not. Um, my I'd I'd." A wife, I had two kids, and I knew the methods that were employed to to get rid of people. And he said, I had it on good authority that, that my wife and family were going to be put into a freezer, taken out of the freezer again after a, you know, a little while, put back in again, you know, almost dead, bring them back out again. It would have been torture. Mm. And he felt that that was the only option open to him. Now, only he knows whether that's the truth, mm. but... I have to say, as a you know, as a father, if I was put in that position, I think I'd probably know what I would do. Mm. Um, and it, you know, he, he he was put into witness protection, but he got thrown out of witness protection for dealing drugs. <laughs> so it didn't really do him a great deal of good. Well, anyway, Sammy the boss set up his ex's ring in competition with mine while he was in witness protection. Yeah. <laughs> he was a real character and I'm pleased I got to meet him and spend that time with him because he, he was a real character and yeah. you know we, we there was one really memorable night when um, it was I think it was the last night and, and I'd been out I'd, I'd had some filming work that, that day and I'd left him in the house and um, he'd said look I'll cook you dinner <laughs> cook you dinner all the way up I'm not sure I, I'm not sure I fancy this you know um, he was going to cook cook dinner he said, invite Steve and, you know, invite, you know, invited a couple of well-known faces from Newcastle as well. And um, he said, come, come home. He said, I guarantee you, I'll cook you some, cook you some dinner. I got home and first of all, he painted me a massive canvas, like, you know, that, which is still in my, my dining room, which he painted the New York sky, you know, skyline on, bless him. Um, but what, when, I, when, when I walked in and when Steve walked in, he's there with a razor blade cutting the garlic up, just like he does on the Goodfellas film. <laughs> and he did these meatballs. Um, they were phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. And he'd spent all day doing it, all day doing wow. it. And yeah, it was fabulous. And we sat down and we broke bread and we ate food. It was just amazing, amazing. Yeah, he's got a bang up a broad episode out as well. Mm. So what other projects are you working on? Well, we've got, um, I mean, lockdown, lockdown's given me the opportunity to do a bit more with Steve. So um, I've helped him with a, a number, of his, number of his books, but also we've kind of, we've had a go at, um, at, at kind of putting a few documentaries together that um, kind of tell a slightly different story. So we've, we've, we've done stuff with Alan Lord. 
Oh, out of Manchester we've had him on. Yeah, what a story. Fascinating and lovely bloke. And they're trying to capture him and yeah. he's running through all the houses. Yeah. I'll never forget that story. And he, he's such a such a nice bloke now and, and I'm sure he wasn't in his day, but he's such a lovely well, bloke. That's the only one that Wildman actually said when we were leaving the studio. He said, um, he's pretty fucking dangerous. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he, never, he doesn't think anyone's dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> he certainly wasn't his day. He certainly was. But but, but Alan's story is brilliant because Alan, Alan, as you know, you've had him on, you know, Alan, what Alan did changed prison for forever. You know, it changed, it gave prisoners more rights. It gave them, you know, just like Michael Lavaglio, who we mentioned just, you know, we've been talking about Michael. Michael was the first prisoner to gain a degree in prison. You know, he fought for that right. But Alan Lord, Alan Lord, you know, a lot of the stuff he was trying to highlight by climbing on the roof, it, it did make a difference. It did make a difference. Yeah, and so Alan, I found... Alan, really fascinating. Um, yeah. We've done, um, we've done the, the latest one is um, Bride of Bronson, which um, is um, Charlie Salvador now, but it was Charlie Bronson, um, his first wife, Irene. Um, so they, they tell their story of, of what it was like before he became this, this you know, this notorious character, uh, what their life was like, how it was, how it was being married. They both tell their story. Um, and that's that's fascinating one as well. Um, and I think what lockdowns allowed us to do is it's allowed us to to visit these kind of characters that that Steve and I have talked about between us, you know, because we're both true crime fans. Um, it's allowed us to go and visit these people under COVID rules. Um, you know, I did do, I did do a short course on filming under the COVID regulations, so we did everything right. But um, it's enabled us to go to these people and get these stories that perhaps we, we may not have had the time to do, you know, normally. Um, and, it, and it's been great, great fun, actually. Albert Sayers is the other one. Albert, who, you know, I've grown very close and very fond of over the years. Albert is, is the uncle of, of Stephen Sayers, who I know you've had on here. And um, Albert is an absolute character. And, and it, the history behind Albert and his, you know, he, he again, he was a, a rule breaker, but a... But he, he forced a change to make street trading legal, you know, in, in, in Newcastle and, and around the country. You know, he made a real difference. And because of his actions, you know, the, the laws were changed. And, you know, Albert's got a fascinating story. Yeah, check out A Breed Apart if you want to learn that, that whole history. Absolutely. Which is the book on Amazon, yeah. 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 Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been great fun. And, and Brian, I've, I've done Brian Cockrell's... Um, little documentary with Brian, Brian Cockrell and, and that's gone down really well because Brian, Brian's, Brian's a completely changed man now, the tax man. You've had him on here. He's, yeah. he, he's completely different. He's a lovely... Did you see him on the Donald McIntyre? Yes, yeah. yeah. I mean, in his day... Picking cars up and everything. In his day, I mean, the stories Stephen's told me, you know, I mean, yeah. in, his, in his day, Brian was just, you know, you wouldn't have wanted. You wouldn't have wanted to mess with him at all. But, but Brian, Brian's a... A changed man, and yeah. and you know I've got to know him really well, and he and he is, you know, it's not just an act. That is mm -hmm. Brian. So if people want to dive deeper into Michael's story, then which the bulk of this podcast has been about today, mm. you're still running that website. Yeah, um, I mean, part of that promise I made Michael was that if 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 anything happened to him, I'd carry on fighting, and I did promise him that, and that is what I will do. Yeah. So I will continue doing that, and that part of that means taking on the website and making sure that it's. You know, it's kept up to date and, and, and paid for and, you know, and all of that. And so that, yeah, people can visit that um, at villainorvictim.com. We will put that link in the description box. Are there any other links or contact methods that people, you know, 
you're on all the socials or I'm on all the socials, yeah. yeah. Um Neil Jackson, um, or Media Arts. Um and I, I could be contacting all of those. Um I mean I I'd say this in every interview I do, whether it's print or or, or what, but that if if anybody has any information about the civic case, and I, I appreciate that we're now fifty-five odd years on, but if anybody does have any, any information, please do get in touch because it, you know, it, it. I did promise Michael that that's what I would do, and, I, and I'm I'm determined to do that. Yeah. So please go down then and check out in the description box the links there for Michael's website if you are interested in the case. And if you want to reach out to Neil, just his socials are down there as well. So huge thank you for coming on then. Thank you. And um, huge thank you to all the people who've watched this. Let us know in the comments what you thought. Subscription logo is in the bottom corner of the screen. And all our socials and donation links are in the description box as well. Well done, man. Yeah, yeah. cheers. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.